Uh, let's see. Seth in Virginia Beach. Hi, Seth. What's on your mind? Hey, DP. Hey, bud. Hey, uh, only best for the weekend, no worse. Uh, already been talked about on the show, but the big game over the weekend, talking about my Longwood Lancers yeah. taking down Winthrop and getting a ticket to the dance. Winthrop tried their hardest, but they couldn't handle the Longwood D. All right. Thank you, sir. Well done. None of us can. Yeah. Chris been waiting a long time to make that kind of yes, joke at Longwood. Yes, he has. <laughs> Decades. Uh, Chris in Indiana. Hi, Chris. Take criticism and take that criticism and feed it back into your product. Constantly improve it and iterate as fast as you possibly can. And that's what got us to a point where we're at right now. Just build the damn thing yourself. Whatever money you got, ideally whatever skills you got, and prove that your idea actually makes sense. It was effectively like a curated Reddit of naked ladies. Hard job. Yeah, it was really difficult. Did you tell your parents how you're making this money? My dad knew. <laughs> He's your number one customer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about that industry, and I don't find it interesting. So I sat down. It's like, hmm, what do I actually like and know a thing or two about that I am genuinely interested in? And more importantly, the state of that industry is complete garbage at the time. And that's when I looked into VPNs. My name is Igor Sack. I run Winscribe. We're based in Toronto. Well, Winscribe is a privacy company. So, I mean, our kind of main product is a VPN service that anyone anywhere in the world could use. We're working on a freemium model. So vast majority of our users don't pay us a thing because in places that require a VPN the most, people usually don't have a lot of money, which is one of the reasons we do offer a free service for such individuals. But at the end of the day, anyone anywhere is welcome to use it for free, a bit with a few limitations in terms of how much you can use. But it's a fully-fledged service. You can pretty much use vast majority of our features instead of our applications and the companion browser extensions that are meant to work together with our core VPN product offering to deliver a much better privacy solution than a VPN can basically deliver on its own. Well, yeah, I've used it before, too. So it worked when I used it. But with the VPN, like, I guess most people don't understand what that is. Could you make it easy for anyone who's not tech-savvy? Right. I mean, at its core, it's actually very simple. All a VPN does, literally just the only thing that it really does, is it creates a what's known as a tunnel, which is basically a connection from your computer to one of our computers, which happen to be in data centers. That's pretty much all it does. And then once you connect to this computer in a data center, whenever all your browsing activity kind of goes into this quote-unquote tunnel, and it emerges on the other side from our servers and then goes out to the internet. That's effectively all a VPN does. So whenever you're kind of browsing different things, you know, going to different websites or, you know, using apps or whatever, the owners of those websites and apps will not see your personal IP address that was assigned to you by your internet service provider, but they'll see an IP address of one of our servers that we operate in different countries. I was going to say, well, yeah, one of my favorite things to go to is if go to like infosniper.net, if anyone who's listening now, especially if they're on a laptop or whatever, and you can see it shows exactly where you're located, right? Versus if I'm Go onto your VPN, press go, and then it'll put me somewhere else in the U.S. So you can see exactly what you're talking about. People can see exactly where I am on the internet versus if I have a VPN on, then they aren't tracking me everywhere, right? Yeah, I would say that was kind of, that was true years ago during the inception of VPNs. In the last while, maybe like five to 
eight years or so. I mean, there's other ways to kind of track a person outside of their IP address. Those things, you know, for example, all your mobile devices, they literally have a GPS antenna, right? That any app or even website can use, right? Google and Apple jumped on the privacy bandwagon. So that's why you're seeing all these like permissions. Each app asks you specific permissions. Like, do you want to give us access to this? Give us access to that. But that's only a recent thing. Before, you know, most apps had like carte blanche to be like, oh, okay, we're just going to use the GPS antenna. We're going to use the microphone. We're going to use all of this. Now you have to explicitly opt into these things as a result of the backlash. The GPS is just one of the ways that you can be tracked. There's several other ways that, you know, your anonymity, quote unquote, can be compromised. Yeah, I think I learned a lot of it from Eric Snowden. I saw an interview he did with Rogan a long time ago. Maybe it was a couple of years ago, but they're saying even old cell phones where you could actually take the batteries out. That was the only way you could not be tracked. But even then, they were kind of skeptical. But now, if you think about it, any actual phone that anyone has, you can't take the battery out like you used to. So it's pinging every 60 seconds, these different cell phone towers that are in between you. So they can still find you that way, too, I guess you're saying. Uh, yeah, through cellular. Yeah, cellular triangulation. That's been a thing. Law enforcement has been using it since the inception of mobile networks, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad, depending on which country that you live in. Well, I guess if I'm living in the U.S., should I be worried? I mean, it's hard to say. Things are really crazy over there. <laughs> Everything's kind of changing by the day. And Toronto is no different than most of the United States. It's a big city, close to the border. You know, there's a lot of people living here. If you were just walking down the street, you'd be like, okay, this is pretty much America. Right. I think I read or saw a graph that said like 80% of the Canadian population is within 20 miles of like the U.S. border. So yeah, you, you basically live outside Toronto, which is obviously a monster city. So I guess you deal with the same things that... I have to worry about the FBI snooping me out and knowing what I'm looking at. Effectively. But I mean, at the end of the day, if the government wants you bad enough, it doesn't matter what tools you're using, you know, what VPNs you have. Unless you have Winscribe. <laughs> I do want to say that, but, you know, that wouldn't be true. If someone wants you bad enough, they'll get you regardless of what you have and what kind of OPSEC you have. So at the end of the day, it's kind of what's your threat vector? You know, if you're just trying to stay private and reduce your footprint online and not have your personal information collected and sold by tracking companies and advertisers, you know, a VPN with an app blocking solution would be a decent tool. And it's just one of the tools that you should have in your tool belt, so to speak. But if you're an international terrorist, <laughs> it's probably not going to do much for you. And it's a spectrum here in between, you know, you don't have to be one or the other. Those are the extremes, I think. So we probably all somewhere in between. Yeah, I think even if like people are thinking about hackers or something like that, it's like the more barriers you have up, if one home looks way more guarded than another one that has like an open door that I can just go into, then the hacker is just going to go to the open door and take everything, right? Versus if I have something that looks like I have security cameras, I have a barbed wire fence around my house, maybe if it's not worth the time. Yeah, sure. I mean, that will deter kind of like, you're not going to be the lowest hanging fruit. They would go somewhere else if it's not targeted. But if you're being targeted, you know, that's not really going to do much if someone wants you bad enough. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, VPNs, contrary to the marketing you may have seen online on every single YouTube channel out there. <laughs> but first, here's a word from our sponsor. VPNs won't really prevent you from getting hacked. You know, a lot of the claims that are being made to promote VPNs are just straight up lies, just done for the sake of marketing and generating sales. For example, in Winscribe, we don't really advertise. We no longer have an affiliate program. We don't really pay anyone to send us any users. Uh, kind of growth is pretty much exclusively word of mouth, as has been the case since day one, which was about like six years ago almost. I will say one of the things that I like, I liked your marketing that you would send very clever emails with funny gifts in them. And I can still tell that you still have that 
maybe we have the same sense of humor. If I go to windscribe.com, I see that you have a heart by Miami, so I can act like I'm a VPN in Miami, and you have Florida Man next to it, and then you have 69 next to it. So I guess there's 69 servers there. No, that was that number is technically latency, but oh, sorry, we just use the funny sex number to be cool and quirky and stuff. <laughs> then right underneath there is Los Angeles dog, and it's 420. I picked up on that. I don't know if everybody else is as sick as me, but. No, no, like all our kind of uh, location names, what you see in our applications are not actually servers, they're location names. We don't expose individual servers because at the end of the day, it's kind of meaningless. Uh, like, oh, hey, uh, I'm, I'm connecting to US server number 167. Okay, cool. That's kind of meaningless. We kind of give them like quirky names. They're a lot more memorable. A lot of people do find them amusing. I would say it's a breath of fresh air. We're not this corporate nameless VPN. You can go talk to us. I'm extremely public on Reddit. We have a Discord server. On Twitter, I do most of our shit posting on Twitter, and it's all very much on brand, kind of jokey, very approachable. You know, you can ask us anything. If you're rude to us, we'll be rude back to you. <laughs> We don't have a philosophy that the customer is always right, because a lot of the time, the customer might not be right, you know, and some people do get very aggressive with their thoughts and requests, and, you know, some people get outright rude. And in many places, we'd be like, oh, sir, we will help you. We will help you. But if you're going to be rude to us, we're not going to help you. <laughs> oh, well, now I just added you on, because I was looking for you on Twitter, but I couldn't find you. But now I just added Windscribe. So you're the guy who handles the Windscribe Twitter account? Traditionally, yes. But we did get a guy to kind of like take over the reins. So I'm going to be tweeting less and less through the Windscribe account. I do have my personal one, which I don't really use. I'm kind of in mostly in read-only mode, just things that I find interesting, you know, for my personal hobbies and work stuff as well, obviously. But my opinion is stay off social media unless you really have something useful to say. So you aren't on there telling me if I should take a vaccine or not, or what political stance I should have on things? That's not you? And no, no, I don't think that's my business, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They say, actually, I think like 1% of the Twitter accounts make up 90% of the tweets, which I definitely believe. Yeah, it makes sense. And sometimes I see like Twitter accounts of CEOs of large companies like, holy shit, you're tweeting like 30 times a day. I think the same thing. Are you actually work at all? Do you work at all? <laughs> yeah. Is there like work to be done or something? I asked someone, you know, some people, maybe you have like, you've raised so much VC capital that you have so many people just doing every single one of your responsibilities and you're just tweeting all day. If that's the case, I mean, okay, great. Good for you. I'm not in that position. So I don't tweet pretty much ever. <laughs> I think we're, yeah, we're both in the kind of same position there. You're not like Clubhouse getting the VC money and then turning down multiple billions from Twitter to take over a platform that was failed from the get-go, right? I mean, yeah, we've never raised any money for Winscribe. It's been an entirely bootstrap project. Even though we have kind of VCs approaching us, I would say almost on a monthly basis, but so far I see no reason to take their money. I'm kind of a huge believer that if you're able to, which is not applicable to some industries and some businesses, but is for most things that do end up raising money. Just build the damn thing yourself, whatever money you got, ideally whatever skills you got, and prove that your idea actually makes sense before you know raising millions of dollars, hiring 50 people, getting Juicero machines in a nice fancy office, and then you're out of money a year later. Now you're doing your next round and just losing more and more money, all for the hope of generating revenue at some point, sometime next decade, potentially. <laughs> Yeah, I think we have the same thought pattern on that. I keep trying to raise VC money for my podcast, but everyone keeps turning me down. So I have to do it the hard way, I guess, just like you did. So how big is your company? Because I don't think we've dove into the numbers as far as employees and customer count, et cetera. 
Right. So, I mean, Windscribe launched, uh, funnily enough, on April 20th, 2016. That was not on purpose. I just, yeah, it, right. you know, no, <laughs> no, 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 it really wasn't. It just, just it literally just happened that way. But anyway, at this point, we're not super huge. We're about like maybe like 35 people. And in terms of customer accounts, I mean, this information is actually public on our website. If you go to like windscribe.com slash status, which gives you kind of the status of the whole company, so to speak, and the exact state of things. I think we're just approaching 40 million users. I think it was 39 point something a few days ago. So almost 40 million users. Obviously, most of these people don't pay us a dime because we are a freemium product. So it's kind of like single digit percentages of those people choose to pay us something. And that's kind of what pays the bills and subsidizes all the free users. Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? Zipbox.com makes it easy for US businesses to partner with factories in Mexico, and you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more, with new products being added every single day. All of the factories on Zipbox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try Zipbox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? It was Zipbox.com. That's Z-I-P-F-O-X.com. There's no membership fee, and you can search without even creating an account. So try Zipbox.com today. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. And so if I download and, but do you only have free for a certain amount of time? Or, I mean, I'm looking at the pricing and whatnot. What's the difference between someone who pays and doesn't pay? So if you don't pay, you basically get 10 gigabytes of data per month. And that's for the lifetime of the account. So every month it gets reset and you get your 10 gigs back basically. And then you can use that effectively forever. And so you just do that to try to give them a taste of it. And then hopefully they convert to a paying member. Yeah, effectively. It's like, here's our product. Here's all our apps. You can use all of it really. So the only restrictions are how much data you can use, because at the end of the day, that's what costs us money is every gigabyte that you transfer through our servers, you know, we have to pay for. So that's why it's kind of limited. And we also reduce the amount of locations that you can actually connect to. 
So some of the exotic ones where the price of bandwidth and server costs are really high, we reserve those for you know paying users, obviously. So the locations that the free users can access are typically cheaper and offer better pricing for hardware and bandwidth. That's why it makes sense to offer it for free. And what I appreciate about you is doing that free version because when I've looked at other VPNs too, it's like you have to pay to actually even see if they're any good, you know? And then after you pay, you're like, well, if they suck, then it wasn't worth it. I'm not going to name names, but it's like when I tried yours and I did the free one and then I ended up becoming a paying member, it was because I was like, okay, they actually gave me the opportunity to see that their servers were actually good. So I don't really know if any other VPNs do that, but it seemed like you were one of the few and that kind of made you stand out. Yeah, there's a handful of other providers that do offer kind of like a freemium model as well. However, they do offer a lot less and in terms of bandwidth and I would say also in terms of functionality that you get with your free bandwidth. But the main reason why we're doing this is it's a great strategy to get users through. We're not doing any advertising. It's a lot easier to convince someone to try a product that doesn't cost anything, right? So you'll have quote unquote higher conversions through whichever efforts that you do. And in our case, these efforts are not monetary. Yeah, a lot more people will sign up and say, oh, get Winscribe. And like, they'll go on there. I can try it for free. Okay, cool. I'll give it a shot. But as soon as you're presented with like, oh, here is a credit card form, the drop-off would be a lot higher. And so how old are you today? Oh, that's a mysterious question. I think I'm 34. Honestly, I've lost track of time in the last two years. But yeah, 34. Okay. So did you ever think you'd have a business this size at 34? I mean, I've been doing a bunch of things before Winscribe. So this is kind of just the current step in the chain of things that I've done before. And most of those things were failures, much like I would probably say any other founder. It's very rare that you're going to do one thing and it's going to be a successful project. You probably went through a string of failures before, learned a bunch of things, and you are where you are as a result of those, I guess, experiences. Well, it sounds good. Yeah, we look forward to diving into that. So I guess, is there anything else we should know about Winscribe before we rewind and hear about those failures that led up to Winscribe? We can probably talk about Winscribe in the end once we go through the strings of failures and some successes as well, I guess. Okay, cool. So where do you want to start off your story? Well, I was born in Belarus. I think uh, you spoke to Nikita at some point from Panadoc. He's also from there. So we're both from the same city. I was born there in 1987. So I lived there for, I think, 12 years or so. Then my parents decided that, hey, it's time to flee this place. It's not a great place to raise kids or if you actually want to do anything meaningful due to the government situation in the country. I'm going to be a bit more open with it because I have no desire to <laughs> go back to Belarus anytime soon, at the very least until the current dictator is no longer <laughs> dictating. But yeah, we left because there was very little future if you want to actually do anything in your life. If the government is way too restrictive. You know, private industry was clamped down and still is. Private businesses are literally being taken away by the government. Just like one day, for example, a friend of mine, my childhood for another time, his dad owned an Audi dealership in Minsk, the main one. And that was a big deal, by the way, having like a foreign car brand and you're an authorized dealer in Belarus back in the 90s. That was a big deal. Yeah. And Minsk is the capital. So I haven't even heard of that, you know, so that's like the capital of the whole country. Yeah, pretty much. One day, a bunch of dudes came to his dealership and was like, hey, it's time to share. We're going to need 95% of your revenue. So it's not like we're going to need like 10% or 20 or 30. We're going to need 95% of your revenue. And he said, no, you know, I built this thing. It's mine. And I'm not going to give you 95% of my revenue. And he was in basically jailed. And I think he was literally in jail for more than 10 years as a result of saying no to the government. Wow. I'm guessing you're glad you didn't grow up there then, huh? 
I'm really glad my parents took me as carry-on luggage and brought me to Canada. <laughs> what age were you when you did that? I was about 12. Yeah, I was 12 years old. Did you get the chance to check out Makata Panda Doc story that we had? I think it's episode 92 in case anyone's wondering. Yeah, I listened to a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because he kind of explained the same things. And this wasn't even that long ago. What, there was a Ryanair airplane that went over Belarus. Yeah. Getting that journalist uh, yeah, off the plane, like intercepting the plane, <laughs> forcing it to land under false premises, and then jailing him and his wife or girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, that's just what's happening now. And just because he's writing negative things about the government, in case anyone hasn't looked this up, it happened a while ago, but it was still kind of insane, you know? Belarus, I guess, went on radar with the latest quote-unquote elections that happened a few years ago. The current president has been in power, I think, since 1994, I believe. So he gets, you know, re-elected every five years or so. And it's always a landslide, of course. That's amazing. So all the people like him. So it's just the fair voting that does it? Well, it's very arguable to say that people like him. <laughs> or that it's fair voting. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, I still speak to a few people over there because I do still have some friends. Most of my family is either here in the United States or dead, I guess. But I do have a few friends there. So I kind of get some tidbits from over there. What are their tidbits? It's not very good. <laughs> Don't come home. <laughs> it's kind of like if you have the opportunity to leave and you want to live a free life, make that happen if you can, basically. There are very few things that you can actually do in Belarus and have a good life. And fortunately for people in my industry, being a developer is one of those things. And up to very recently, like even IT companies were kind of, quote unquote, like left alone, so to speak, you know, from all the purges and stuff like that. And that is for one single reason. A bunch of government dudes can gump and take over a dealership, a factory or, you know, a store or anything. But they can't really come over and just take over an IT company because they're not going to be able to operate it because, I mean, they don't have the necessary skills to operate in that kind of world, right? And, you know, developers are, they're very peculiar types of individuals. So, yeah, you can't be forced to <laughs> write code, you know, for the government and have that be a successful company. So that's why IT companies have been traditionally left alone. You know, there's uh, very favorable tax regimes for IT companies in Belarus. But those favorable tax regimes come with strings attached. Those strings being, we need complete transparency about everything that you're doing, your financials, your, like, literally everything. So, and that's for one purpose only. If those regimes were to change suddenly, overnight, <laughs> with no warning, all your cards are on the table. And the government can do whatever they want. You know, as a result of that, the biggest internet companies did exist in Belarus. Like, I think, like, World of Tanks is one of the biggest things out of Belarus. They're all kind of jumping ship and, you know, moving their offices outside of the country because of the instability. Yeah. And I was thinking, I mean, I would definitely be lying too if I could on the financials that you send to the government. I don't know if there's a way for them to force that, especially if they're going to come take it over. But it makes sense what you're saying. I mean, why there are so many developers, because that's what he brought up. And I guess it was relating to your story where you said your buddy's dad, that if you own a dealership, they can easily take that away. But if I become a coder, they can never really take that away. So maybe that's why a lot of younger guys get into tech at a, in Belarus, too, because they're like, it's almost impossible for them, it seems like, to take that away. I think most people, like the developers themselves, get into that for those reasons. They get into it because, you know, they like computers, they enjoy programming. Ex-Soviet Union countries, you know, Belarus being one of them, they do have a traditionally very high engineering backgrounds and levels of education in the STEM fields, the physics, the math, the technology, and programming at this point as well. So it's kind of very on-brand. 
to get into that kind of thing. You know, the best hackers are in the Soviet Union countries sitting there causing chaos for, for America and America is doing the same thing for them. It's a never ending cycle. Yeah. Did you get into that movie? What was it? John Travolta movie with the hackers at <laughs> like 2000, I feel like. Oh, a swordfish? Swordfish. Yeah, I was looking up swordfish yeah. and it wasn't coming up. It's was only the fish. And I'm like, I thought it was called swordfish. Yeah. <laughs> when that movie came out, I was like, oh, this is the greatest movie ever. <laughs> I might have to watch that later on. It's got pretty bad ratings, but I remember Oh man, it's cool to be a hacker. Maybe I'll just watch it on repeat in Belarus. <laughs> I mean, it's probably if you watch it now, I'll be like, oh, okay, this is like super lame. But it's 20 years old now, by the way. <laughs> Actually, yeah, even more yeah. than 20 years old. Yeah, but when you're like 13 or 14, uh, oh, it's great. It's like explosions, hacking, and all the kind of stuff. Yeah, it's great. I see. I'm so bad with actors' names. Oh, Holly Berry. She was freaking hot, obviously. But then they got the guy who played Wolverine. I don't know that guy's name. Hugh Jackman, I believe. Yeah, he's in the movie. I don't even remember that. I don't know if you remember that. I'm only looking at pictures, so that's all I know. Yeah, honestly, I haven't seen it probably in... In 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Just whenever it came out, that's when I watched it. Yeah, well, maybe we can watch it afterwards. And then Don Cheadle, I don't know if people are going to be mad that I mispronounce that guy's name, but he's a famous actor too. Uh, man, I guess that was a box office killer back in the day. So yeah, I might watch that later. <laughs> but yeah, I guess back to, yeah, you leave in Belarus, so... You're leaving at 12 and then your parents decide Canada. And why did they decide Canada versus like the U.S.? Well, originally we're actually supposed to come to the United States because my grandparents, they moved to Chicago a few years before that, like in the early 90s. And my grandparents' parents also moved. So I have quite a bit of family in the United States at this point, I guess. My parents did apply for both the United States and Canada. It's just it was taking a long time with the whole paperwork for the United States. So. Canada people were came in first. So we're like, hey, okay, let's go there. Instead, it's right next door anyway. And so that just right when you got the papers that said, okay, you're out of there? Basically, it was kind of like, yeah. And my dad was like, okay, yeah, we need to leave this place. Right. Okay. And so you start growing up there. Was that hard? Did you know like English? Yeah. My parents knew that we are probably not going to be living the rest of our lives in Belarus. So they put me into a school where you learn English pretty much every single day. So when I came to Canada, I actually had a British accent because that's the type of English that they teach over there. So it was kind of weird. But yeah, I lost that accent very quickly, I guess. So you come over and on the flight over, you're watching Swordfish and then you just say, hey, I'm going to be a hacker once I get to Canada. It wasn't that, I guess. No, it wasn't as well as Swordfish, even though that was a cool <laughs> movie. No, I mean, in Belarus, I think we got a computer when I was like nine or 10 or something like that. They didn't have internet back there. So I just had a computer. I think it was like a 386. So, I mean, like any nine or 10 year old kid played a lot of games. It's like, ooh, computer, I can install these floppies and play all these games. It's great. So I didn't really do anything productive in Belarus with a computer, primarily because I didn't have access to the internet. So there's only so much you can do without access to information outside of what you can bring on a floppy drive. So I guess when I moved to Canada, you know, we obviously got internet. So that to me, that was kind of like, oh, wow, there's all this stuff out there. You know, I can go and search for literally anything and like learn anything on any topic here from home. It's pretty amazing. That got me really into computers, so to speak. And yeah, very quickly I got into the idea, hey, like all these things out there that exist, it's all websites. At that point there were no apps, <laughs> right? It's just like you type in an address, you land on some website that some person has made and there's information on it. And you can read it, you can learn it, but learn something new. You can email that person, you can establish dialogue. So to me, that was pretty awesome. So I'm like, hey, I want to make websites as well. So you bought lmylife.com? Yeah, no, that was one of the 
failed projects. <laughs> the only reason I know this, in case anyone's knowing, we did not speak about this. I tried looking up your name on Twitter to find you. I couldn't find you. Someone wrote April 3rd, 2009. Yesterday, I said someone should start lmylife.com. It was registered yesterday. I have my eye on you, Igor Sok. <laughs> this random person wrote that on Twitter. Yeah, because like, for anybody that remembers, there was a site called F My Life where... Uh, oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. so people would kind of like post anecdotes about how shitty their life is. So like something shitty that happened to them. And then other people would upvote or downvote how shitty or how whiny that person is. So it'd be like a ranking of, you know, compare your life and be like, okay, my life is not as bad as all these people who are complaining about their lives. So the idea of this was L was love my life would be the opposite. Here's something positive that happened in my life. Here's something that I appreciate it that happened to me today or yesterday or whatever. And that didn't really go anywhere. Well, F my life sounds like Twitter before Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People just complaining about their life before. Yeah, basically it goes, I guess, like human nature. People would rather see that other people are worse than themselves and kind of like, okay, at least my life is not as bad as that. And you kind of feel better about yourself as opposed to the other way around, which I guess is like literally social media these days. You go on Instagram, you see everybody having an amazing life, traveling everywhere, looking perfect and apparently happy. And then you're like, oh, wow, my life is so boring compared to theirs. But in reality, it's like literally the other way around. Yeah. I think the people who do the most posting is usually their most superficial, well, not even superficial, but they don't think they're even cognizant of what they're doing. You know, you get so entrenched to it that you don't even think about I'm accidentally, even if it's by accident, like one up and other people instead of just live your life, you know, L my life, you know, I guess people on social media, especially, you know, the influencers, they're effectively performers, you know, they're no different than actors and I guess musicians, except it's arguable, the difference in skill level, but that's a whole other story. But you hear it all the time, you know, musicians killing themselves because of their depression, even though as an outsider, you're like, hmm, well, you're a famous person with so much money. What makes you unhappy? But people have their own demons that are personal and private that nobody on the outside is privy to. Understood. Yeah. So you buy L My Life on April 2nd, 2009, based on this tweet, right? Yeah. But that was one of the 10 things I was doing at the time. Before that, there were kind of, I would say, a few more interesting projects than that particular thing. Yeah, let's jump to it. I just I had to bring that up because I thought it was so funny when I was looking for you. And I responded to this guy's tweet from 12 years ago, too. I said, I'm looking for you, too. But I thought <laughs> just so funny. I mean, that's at least one of the good things about Twitter. If you can figure out searching, I just never randomly thought I'd find one from 12 years ago about you. So let's talk about you. You're 12 when you come over from Canada. Let's jump to whatever year it is. And what's your first business that you actually start? Right. The years are going to be hazy because it was so long ago at this point and so much has happened since then. But anyway, I think like around the age of 14 or 15, I started seriously getting into, okay, I'm going to be making all these like random websites about things that I like. And at that point, I was spending a lot of time on these like what was known as humor portals, the e-bombs world type websites. E-bombs world used to be a bunch of others, ones like FARC, something awful. And there was like a million other ones, which basically just kind of like Reddit before Reddit, where it's like, here's a bunch of funny pictures, you know, they were still called funny pictures, not really memes back then. Or here's some funny video clips. This is before YouTube, you're literally downloading AVI and real player files of something amusing happening. Now that you're just streaming everything on YouTube. That wasn't the case before. So it'd be like kind of these collections of funny, amusing things. So I'm like, okay, I like funny, amusing things. So I had a few of those types of websites that where I would curate amusing content that I thought was interesting and funny or humorous in some way. So I did that, you know, there were obviously really small websites, but 
I started making money from these websites probably around the age of yeah, 14 or 15. At the end of the month, you'll get a check from some ad firm or something for like 300, 400 bucks from the internet. You know, you're like, oh, wow, getting money from the internet. You know, my parents are like, oh, wow, where are you getting all these checks from? Who's sending you this money for what? You're like idiots. Yeah, I put this little banner here and, you know, some people click on it. And then, you know, I get 20 cents every time somebody clicks on this little banner over here. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I guess the year's about 2001. I was doing the math, 2000, 2001, if you're about 14, 15 at this time. Yeah, I think it was about 2002-ish, 2003-ish. I mean, this the humor portal phase. A lot of these things kind of overlap with each other. It's not like I was doing one thing, then I stopped doing it, then I did another thing. There's overlap in between all these different projects. Some of them required almost no maintenance day to day. Some of them required a lot of maintenance and your time is spent spread over all these projects, however many there are. Energetic Austin here. And our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I want a better gut health and an optimized immune system. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. See, I consume my healthy scoop of Athletic Greens every single morning, so I get my day started off right. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. For less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health and it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your laptop exposed at the coffee shop table while you run to the bathroom. Whether you gotta go number one, number two, or number three, most of the time, you're probably fine. Oh, and your laptop is probably fine too. But what if one day you come out of that bathroom and your laptop is gone? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, or other special places, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal and naughty data. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody. Just some cheap hardware is needed, a smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. And did you know hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal info on the dark web? So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, in my own words, they have an encrypted tunnel, which creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal that sensitive and naughty data. It's super secure. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Billion years is a long time. It's easy to use. Fire up the app and click one button to get protected. And guess what? It works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more. So you can stay secure on the go. 
my endorsement is required. So let me tell you what I like most about ExpressVPN. Well, I like that it's going to take over a billion years for someone to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And that's personally important to me because, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to live to be a billion years old. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash millionaire. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash millionaire. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash millionaire. Are you doing this just outside of Toronto still? Is that where you moved when you landed in Canada? We came straight to Toronto and I've been in Toronto pretty much ever since. Yeah. I currently don't live in the city. I've moved out of the city eight or nine years ago. Did the whole downtown living life. Okay, party, cool, great. But then I'm like, okay, I'm kind of done with downtown. I want space. I want fresh air and I want peace and quiet. You want to shovel your own snow? Yeah, yeah. There are downsides to not living in a city for sure, but there's a lot of upside to it as well. Right. There's always pendulum. I actually kind of enjoy some of that outdoor stuff because you don't get that silly as it sounds to me. Sometimes like cleaning, it just feels good. Like I can listen to a fantastic podcast like the one everyone's listening to right now and get my clean on and feel like I've accomplished something other than just staring at a monitor and pretending I'm working. Yeah. Fantastic and humble. Very humble. <laughs> yeah. So you're doing this up to the mid 2000s and I guess making decent money, it sounds like, especially like it, that must be pretty wild to your parents that you're making money through the internet, you said. Yeah, it wasn't crazy money, but you know, a few hundred bucks American. Also, when you convert it to Canadian, you multiply that by 1.4, I guess at the time, maybe even 1.5 at that point. I don't remember what the exchange rate was. Well, now it's, now it's way less with the, how much money you printed off. So don't worry. Yeah. It's like yeah. 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So yeah, I was doing that for a while. And then this was, I think about 2004-ish. I got the idea at that point, you know, the iPod was the hottest craze. You know, everybody wanted an iPod, you know, it's like, oh, you can store gigabytes of music on the go, you know, as opposed to, you know, there were MP3 players before, but they would have like 128 megabytes of storage. So you can put 10, 20 songs on there and kind of like cool. So the iPod was a game changer in the sense that you have gigabytes of storage, you can have your entire music collection. So everybody wanted one. Everybody was like super obsessed. Oh, iPod, iPod. You saw those commercials everywhere, people dancing and then the whole Mac versus PC thing, which was great. So that was the time. So we're like, hey, what if we made a website where we asked people to give us money to buy an iPod and then which we would go and buy at the store and then unwrap it right in the store and just basically destroy it right in the store immediately after the purchase. I think at that time we said this was a statement against consumerism, but honestly, this was just a bunch of <laughs> ridiculous things that 16-year-olds do at the time. So we did that, basically. I made a website with a buddy of mine. So I made the website. He was kind of the person on camera. So I would make the website. I would organize everything. I would record everything. I would make the video. I would publish it. But he would be the one kind of on camera doing the smashing, so to speak. So we raised the money surprisingly quickly. I think we had to raise like about $400 or something. But it's kind of, you know, it's different. You put up a website. It's like, hey, send money to this PayPal address because we'll buy an iPod and we'll smash it. And people actually did it. So we raised the $400 that we needed in, I would say, probably like a week or two. It was pretty awesome. You know, just random people. Here's five bucks. I'm against this whole Apple movement. Here's 10 bucks. And we raised this money. We recorded the video. We released it. People really dug it. You know, this was like a very popular video at the time. This was before YouTube. So in order to distribute the video, so now you have this 20 megabyte video file that you need to distribute to 
tens to hundreds of thousands of people, basically, right? You can't just like, you know, upload it somewhere and then have people just stream it. That was not a thing. And a 16-year-old doesn't have a lot of money to pay for bandwidth and servers and all that kind of stuff, because it was really expensive at the time to do this, which is why YouTube kind of became YouTube as a result of this. So back then, you had to kind of like negotiate. You have to go to like different hosting providers and be like, hey, can you host this file for me? I'll put up a link on my page, and then I will link to your hosting company in exchange for hosting my link. So it's basically, you get free bandwidth, they get some exposure from your mirrors page, what was known at the time where you have multiple links to the same file, just in case one of them doesn't work or it runs out of bandwidth or whatever. So you have multiple places where you can download this file from, and then you can watch it on your computer after you've downloaded the whole thing. Cause you know, streaming was not a thing. The tech was just not ready for that. So that was like a really uh, cool project. And we were like, okay, so that was pretty successful. We've received a lot of fan mail. We received a lot of hate mail. And that was back when you can actually still publish the hate mail. And what we did was we would publish the hate mail along with the emails of the people that sent us the hate mail. And then, (laughs) yeah. That's always the best. (laughs) Yeah. And then they would get reverse hate mailed by all the people that were with us, which was the vast majority of people who supported the project. And then you would have the people kind of emailing us back, oh, can you please remove my post? I apologize for being rude. Please remove my email from your website. I'm getting so much hate mail. I'm like, well, now you know how it feels. <laughs> That's so funny because I love when people Twitter posts like to certain celebrities are like, go kill yourself or fuck you or whatever, you know? And then that person screenshots it, tweets it out, and they have that person's username. I've always thought I'm like, that person's getting so much more back now after all that. <laughs> yeah, now people like censor that kind of stuff because it's kind of like frowned upon. Yeah, but I know some people who don't. And I'm like, I like those people way better. I'm like, I wouldn't hide their username. I would show their username real quick. Yeah, honestly, like, you know, if you're going to be a dick, you should do this publicly, not be like, oh, this they're not going to publish my email so I can say whatever I want. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) I swear. Yeah, it's a guy like once a year would post this one guy. I remember his name was Clay Travis. I think like once a year, this guy would be like, go suck a dick or go kill yourself. And like for four years for straight. And then he's like, love my fans and then screenshots it and puts it on there. <laughs> like every year, this guy's like, what are you trying to accomplish? So if you are thinking about writing a dirty email or, you know, getting in a DM, just realize that there can be ramifications. Yeah, as there should be. All right. Agreed. You and I agree totally on that too. <laughs> Like, it's always funny to me. It's like whenever I get a bad podcast review, I haven't got one in a while. So if anyone wants to write me a bad one, I'm down. But I like reading those because it makes me laugh. I'm like, you think you were going to hurt me? It's a it's laugh of what? It's just so hard to find out who actually wrote it on the iTunes versus like a Twitter account or something. If they're DMing me or sending me their email account, I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely read out their email account, you know? Yeah. If you're doing anything online, you got to grow thick skin. Right. For sure. Because <laughs> you will encounter people that are just dickheads. Yeah. All right. So you encountered some of those and you took matters in your own hands. Got even. Yeah. So that was fun. That project was done. So we we're like, okay, cool. Let's do more of this. And then at that point, the Xbox 360 was coming out just in the next few months. I think that was like at some point in 2005, the Xbox came out. And then the PlayStation was supposed to follow, I think, almost a year later, along with the Nintendo Wii. So we we're like, okay, cool. Let's do all of those. So I set up three websites. One of them was, you know, smash my Xbox, my iPod, sorry, smash my PS3 and smash my Wii.com. So they were all identical in format to the iPod one. Hey, we want to go do this. We're going to go buy this thing. We're going to be the first ones to get it. Then we're going to go and just like destroy this thing right in the store on launch date. So we put up the donations 
a request for donations. We've raised as a result of the first project actually being delivered and people being satisfied with the end result. We raised the money to purchase all the consoles, I think, in less than a day at that point. So we raised all this money. And no, at that point, we had to wait a while until those things got released. So then when the Xbox was coming out, we came there like two days before, set up a tent right in front of Best Buy. At, actually, I think it was Future Shop at that point, which is basically the Canadian version of Best Buy, which no longer exists. And that was just Best Buy. So we kind of camped out in front of a store for like two days to be the first ones in line and documented the whole thing, our camping and like talking to other people, to other fans who wanted this console day one. So we purchased the console, you know, <laughs> we smashed it. We released the video. It was really well received as well. Again, another fresh wave of fan mail, fresh wave of hate mail. But there's no way this is like a profitable business, right? No, I'll tell you where the profits did come from. Because I keep thinking, I'm like, there's no way this guy's for years making money doing this. No, this is not a business. This was like a publicity stunt that happened to generate some money. Yeah, this is a disgusting hobby of yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. All right, so I just want to make sure everyone clarifies so they don't start thinking about like how they can do this too. Yeah, yeah, no, so how does something like that make money? So I don't forget, this is before YouTube. So in order to watch this video, somebody had to go to our website. There's no other place to watch that video. You have to go on our website, which I set up. And then that website at that point had some ads on it. And at that point, there was like a brand new network. I think it was called Yahoo Publishing Network which was like very similar to what Google AdWords is now. Well, whatever the advertising service is for Google, you can put Google ads on your website and people click on them, you get a cut. So Yahoo released that and they had extremely favorable rates. It was like something like $2 per click that they paid you. And it was cool. You can style the links, like the ads, which were basically all links to look like part of your website. It's kind of tricky, but it does generate clicks those clicks being $2 a pop. So when I try to press the X mark in the top right, it's really just putting me to... <laughs> no, no, like what you're talking about that came years after that. These are oh, just... Oh, yeah, sure. I think you're the one who started that shit, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> the X that moving around, I keep pressing Xs. It's like, oh, another ad, another ad, another ad. $2 for you, Igor. Do another $2 for you. Okay, so now we see the business model. Well, again, this was not a business. This was a publicity stunt to generate traffic to a website so people could click some ads. So I can, I don't know, buy something nice for myself and I guess pay the people that were involved in that project because it wasn't just myself, you know. You had bums and tents waiting in line for you, we know. <laughs> had to give him a couple of dollars. <laughs> it was a good buddy of mine. He actually uh, runs uh, like an oddity store these days in Toronto. So if you're in a market of like a pickled human fetus or kangaroo uh, scrotum a wallet, he is the guy to go to. Oh, what's the name of the store so we can make sure we... The Skull Store in Toronto. The Skull Store. A Skull. S-K-U-L-L. Yeah, he happens to sell a lot of skulls as well. And as well as a bunch of other weird stuff. Like, honestly, the site is a gem. Like, I've never seen so many random, interesting, and bizarre things all being available in one place. Skullstore.ca. I went to it. And then the first thing that comes up is a pop-up. And there's an X for me to click. And I'm scared to click it. But I'm going to anyway. Oh, it did actually close. So... Very interesting. But yeah, he is the person in all the videos. Yeah, I can see how this guy would be the guy who would sit in line for you in a tent. Okay, gotcha. And he's your friend though, right? Yeah, he's my childhood friend. Yeah, No longer your friend. <laughs> no, no, we still chat. Not as much as we used to, but we still do. Okay, nice. What's your childhood friend's name? His name is Ben. Ben Lovat. I see. Nice. All right. So yeah, okay. So Ben's waiting in line for you to smash these Xboxes for this hobby. Yeah, so I'm documenting all of this. For the actual smashings, I had to get a few more camera people so we can get like multiple angles of all the smashings. 
you know, of the Xbox, then of the PlayStation 3, then, uh, then of Nintendo Wii. And every time, since all of these were kind of like happening one after the other, each one progressively had a much larger viewership and audience because these videos were seen by a lot of people at the time. Millions and millions of people. And around the time, like when we were releasing the PS3 video, I got an email from, I forget their names, to be honest, but as one of the original YouTube founders, they're like, hey, we have this website called YouTube. You don't have to like self-host all your videos and have all these different links and mirrors. Just upload your file on YouTube and we will stream it for you. There's no, you have to pay for any bandwidth. It's just all free and you can just link anyone to this video and it can get distribution basically. So I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's really cool. And you're like, what's a catch? You're thinking in the back of your head, there has to be a catch, right? Yeah, like, I mean, I don't think I was that skeptical at that point. I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty sweet. Awesome. Like, I will totally do that. So like our Smash My PS3 video at the time when I put it on YouTube was back when they had like a top listing of top videos on YouTube of all time. I think we were like in the top 10 videos on YouTube of all time in 2016 for like several months. It had millions and millions of views. You can still find that video. What would we look up? smash my ps3 that video i think had like i don't know eight or nine million views then for a brief period of time sony sent a dmca complaint i kid you not and that video was removed for copyright infringement reasons and that was like very dubious because there was nothing copyright infringing in a video we we're smashing a playstation 3 with a sledgehammer in front of a bunch of people that really wanted one <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask where you actually did it if you did it right in front of the people because you never even said that part i just imagined that you, that's what you did no, we totally did. And <laughs> <laughs> what are the people's reactions? I mean, you can watch the video yourself after, but I mean, I'm watching it right now on mute. A lot of people were kind of like, oh no, why are you doing this? That kind of stuff. It was an interesting project. <laughs> and your boy's wearing an interesting outfit, Ben. <laughs> we had to like kind of make it more theatrical because a lot of people were expecting it to a point where some people knew that we were going to be there at a specific time to actually do this. They came there with like posters to promote their own personal projects because they knew we're going to be recording this and this is going to be seen by millions of people. So kind of like doing ads inside of those videos. Yeah, they're trying to take over your free ad stuff. Okay. They're just trying to jump on the bandwagon there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think someone was promoting their like GoldenEye mod or something like that. That somebody else was like promoting something else. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the one actually smashing it with a fucking sledgehammer? That's another buddy of mine. I haven't spoken to that dude in years, to be honest. He's kind of a big dude. He's way bigger than your friend who's wearing the... That's why he's wielding the sledgehammer. I know. It makes it... Like, especially next to your friend with the sledgehammer. This guy looks like a fucking giant. <laughs> yeah. Ben, I don't think, would be able to smash it. He's I don't like think a, so he, either. He, yeah, he's, he's a smaller dude. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's definitely worth watching. At least I'm watching on mute. So, yeah, just look up Smash My PS3. That looked like that was the one with the highest amount of views that I'm looking at. Yeah, but keep in mind, this was DMCA'd by Sony, I think, for like multiple years. So I think it would have gotten way more views if it wasn't actually offline. I got it restored, I think, maybe like six or seven years ago because I noticed, oh, this video was taken off and I never even noticed it. And then I did the counter complaint and then they did restore it in the end. Yeah. Well, especially YouTube censors a lot of things now these days, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, that's a whole different story. <laughs> All right. So yeah, you're smashing PS3s. We heard how you've actually made money from this. Yeah. So like those ads really paid for everything. I think all in all, all those three projects probably generated not a whole lot of money, but I think all in maybe like 60 to 80,000 US over the course of two year span. It wasn't too bad. You know, I was like, what, like 17, 18 at the time. So that was a nice chunk of change to have. You know, I had to like obviously split it with the other two guys. 
But yeah, it was like a nice, cool, fun side project. Because I was also working a job at that point, you know, I was just doing regular good old fashioned jobs that kids that age would have and, you know, getting fired from every single one of them. I, I think I've been fired from every job I ever had. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I just have, I guess, the wrong attitude and I kind of have my own opinions. And when someone says something that doesn't gel with me, it rarely works out and then I would get fired. So then I realized, hey, maybe I probably should not work for anyone. I should kind of keep on doing my own thing. Gotcha. So would you give them suggestions on how to operate better or you just would be quiet and leave? Usually both. Or I would get kind of too, not nosy, what's the word for this? Aggressive? Too opinionated and then be like, okay, you got to go. All right. And so you had these odd jobs. You, I guess, weren't, didn't see that as a long-term thing. So you figured you have to start your own business again at some point? Well, it said it didn't go straight into that. So while all this smashing stuff is happening, you know, my humor websites are kind of still around, you know, generating very little money at this point. It's only you thought it was funny. Is that why? No, it's just they weren't very good. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, my sense of humor wasn't gelling with a lot of people. But I mean, I think I was getting maybe like a few hundred visitors, maybe a few thousand visitors across several of those websites that I did operate. I feel your pain, by the way. No one ever gets my humor either. So it makes two of us. But one of those things, I was participating in all these like webmaster forums because you're kind of like talking to other people that run similar style websites. You exchange traffic. Sometimes you buy traffic from each other. Oh, yeah. And the AOL chat rooms. I wasn't there with you. No, it wasn't chat rooms. It I'm was joking. like, four, it's a good, good old time. <laughs> chat rooms was like 2000, I think. <laughs> Maybe even before that. Yeah. I don't think I used AOL uh, here in Canada. There's no uh, COL. Uh, yeah, you came over after the dial-up, I feel like, maybe. No, I had dial-up for the first year or two. I think we got broadband in like 2001 or something like that. Oh, you know exactly when you... That, that was like a come-to-Jesus moment for you, huh? Oh, yeah. No, it was great. You know? <laughs> Your parents like, what's the big deal? You're like, you have no idea. No, like that really improved my productivity. I'm going to make a VPN one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all roads lead to VPNs for sure. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sorry. I keep cutting off your story with my non-humorous comments. <laughs> so on these webmaster forums, what I noticed was half the people on those forums were running humor websites and the other half of the webmasters were running like naked lady websites effectively. Right. So I'm like, hmm, I'm 18. I like naked ladies. And you're telling me I can get paid to run a website that has naked ladies on them. I'll totally do that. And basically what I'd end up doing is at this point, I did not know how to program. All the websites that I did before were kind of, I would design them, I would do the HTML, CSS, you know, but they were not dynamic websites. They were like just static HTML stuff that you just update manually. And your dynamic elements, you know, you would just download random scripts and you pigeonhole them into parts of your website and you'll have like a poll or something or like a comment section. But I did not write any of that code. And to me, though, I always had all these ideas, but I'm like, oh, okay, I wish I knew how to program. So I'm like, okay, screw it. I'm going to sit down and learn how to program and make an actual dynamic website from scratch. And that happened to be basically a naked lady website. So I made a website like that. It was effectively, I would say, almost like a, not a scrapbook, but like a, I guess, literally everyday updatable scrapbook of some adult theme content that I liked at the time, effectively. And honestly, not to toot my own horn, but I made a pretty nice website in terms of how it functioned. It was very modern for that day and age because it looked unlike all the other sites of that genre looked like at the time. And it functioned in a very, in this modern day and age, it would be like nothing special. But at that time, it was bleeding edge tech that I was using. So you had a play button. Okay. I know there's a play button. And it, <laughs> no, it, it used the asynchronous JavaScript where you can like update parts of the website without the website being refreshed. That was hot new stuff that no one ever used before. 
So I used all the bleeding edge tech at that point. And I ran that website for... Uh, Still today. Well, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's long gone. However, I started That's off... That's what you tell your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, wife at this point. Oh, but, wife. Sorry. Yeah. What was the name of the website? Ah, uh, fuck. It. There were several. It was not the only one because I stamped them out. Cause... What was your best one? Nakedladies.com? No, it's, I think it was called Gravy. G-R-A-V-Y? G-R-A-Y-V-E-E. It was like yeah, a weird spelling. It doesn't exist anymore. That's very close to Gary V. <laughs> <laughs> should I press enter? I'm scared if I should or not. No, I think it just goes to like some spam page to like buy the domain or something like that. Oh, yeah. Where you're probably getting $2 per click or something like that. Yeah, gotcha. No, I don't think I own the domain anymore. I think it all expired. Okay. Well, I pressed enter. Nothing's happening. I'm a little worried. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just pressed exit. Something finally popped up, but I will never know or ever visit again. Don't worry. I did it in incognito, which really doesn't matter. We're, you know, since we're talking about virtual. Yeah. Just use a VPN, you know. <laughs> I was about to switch to a VPN to go look at it, but I don't want to fuck up the interview. So that's the kind of guy I am. Y'all are welcome. Uh, so thoughtful. Yeah. All right. So you get done with the naked lady websites where you making money doing that? No, the, the Naked Lady website turned out to be pretty good. So in about a year's time, I had the biggest website in terms of traffic on that entire forum. And that site was basically generating within the realm of 50,000 US per month. I had no employees. I had virtually no expenses. And the upkeep of that website took me maybe 30 minutes per day. And I had that going effectively for years. So naturally, I had like a lot of spare time. And a lot of money finally, right? Yeah, the money was nice. I bought a condo when I was like 19, and I think I paid off the mortgage on it like a year later. Did you tell your parents how you're making this money? My dad knew. <laughs> he was your number one customer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my mom knew. We never really talked about it. <laughs> oh, good. Let's bring him in the Zoom room right now. <laughs> so let's have a discussion. Yeah. Maybe my dad told her secretly, but she never really inquired about it. He's got a condo. It's all right. As long as he buys it before the crash, then we're good. Yeah, it's like, okay, he's getting all this uh, advertising money off the internet. Can't be that bad. So cool. So yeah, basically, yeah, naturally, I had a lot of spare time because, you know, once the site is built and it grew to its size, you know, the upkeep was very minimal because it was effectively, I had to judge submissions that ended up going onto the homepage. It was, it was effectively like a curated Reddit of naked ladies. Hard job. Yeah, it was really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing this 30 minutes a day. And so what are you doing for the other seven and a half hours of a normal work day? Since I had a lot of spare time, I'm going to go and like learn a bunch of stuff. So I went to university, just like, okay, I'm going to go and learn some stuff, I suppose. So I finished university during this whole time. I was like, okay, cool. That's great. But university didn't take up that much time because I didn't really take it too seriously. At that point, I just kind of doing it for the check mark. And if you're coming from an ex-Soviet country, your parents are like, oh, everybody needs a higher education. You should go to university regardless of how much money you're making. So I'm like, okay, mom. All right, fine. Like I do have this time. So why not? I'll go and study something. And that something was <laughs> political science and geography. Super useful for everything that I do these days. The geography with the VPNs, right? Yeah, no, it's true. I know where different <laughs> countries are. I know which continent contains which country. You kind of look at Google Maps for that now, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. I know all the GPS coordinates, too. Yeah. Every single one, in fact. Nice. So latitudes and longitudes. Yep. All that good stuff. So since university wasn't also taking up that much time, because I didn't really do much studying, most of my studying would be like, okay, go read Wikipedia on the topic for a few days before the exam, get your 75% and okay, it's fine. I'm not going to become a geographer, so whatever. 
then I got into a habit of getting licenses. So I went on a Pokemon hunt of getting licenses. Then I, I got a pilot license. I got a scuba diving license. Then I got a firearms license. I was just collecting them all at that point with all the time that I had. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. So I've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually, the guy that runs US staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. And this is all before Pokemon Go, right? Uh, this is all before Pokemon Go. That's true. Wow. Yeah. But in between the playing cards in 2000. So somewhere in between is when you're collecting all these things. Well, I mean, that was like in the yeah, in the 2000s, late 2000s. That's what I what was doing all of that. Right. Why were you doing that? Just to check off boxes for your mom and show that you're a good model citizen? No, like that box, that was the university box. Everything else was just like generally stuff that I'm interested in, you know, like I always liked aviation. Like my dad is like really into model planes. He was doing that pretty much my entire childhood and he's still doing that flying remote control planes. Well, now it's all drones, but back in the day, it was planes with gas engines on the front that you control remotely. And he went on all these competitions. So I spent like a lot of time on all these different aerodromes watching all these competitions. There would be model planes, there'd be real planes, there would be all these activities happening. So I was always exposed to planes my entire childhood. So I'm like, oh, cool. I like aviation. So I'm like, okay, I'll get a license so I can go and fly planes myself. And that took about a year. But then I'm like, okay, cool. I got a private pilot single engine license. Well, I mean, what else can I do? I'm like, okay, cool. Multi-engine rating is pretty cool. So I can fly bigger planes. So I went to do that. Then I'm like, okay, cool. I want to fly at night as well. So that requires another rating. Okay, cool. I'll get that one as well. So at this point, pretty much I got everything except the instrument rating, which I'll probably do in the next few years when I have a bit more time. What can you do with the instrument rating? Like how big of a plane? Like I guess passenger wise, because that's the only thing I can visualize and maybe others. Well, instrument rating just allows you to fly in instrument conditions when you can't navigate by just looking outside. So if it's poor visibility, I need to fly through like in bad weather or usually it's when, when it's bad visibility, you're going to fly IFR, which you're flying exclusively by instruments. So you're only looking at instruments. You might as well just like tape your outside windows shut and not look outside at all. You're flying exclusively by your needles and your gauges. So it's kind of like a less fun way to fly because you don't really see anything. It's like being in a submarine, right? But you're flying. Yeah, basically. But if you need to fly a lot and you don't want to be restricted by weather, then you pretty much need an IFR rating. And you need that probably even if to have more than one passenger or what? No, to carry passengers, you know, you can carry passengers with a standard private license. You just need to do a bunch of solo takeoffs and landings every once in a while. You have to maintain your currency effectively, and then you can carry passengers as long as the weather's good and you feel it's safe for you to take off at land at whichever airports you're going to and from. Based on, you know, the weather minima, you can fly people, just not for hire. Yeah. How many people can you fly, I guess, for free then? 
Well, basically, your private pilot license allows you to operate any plane. In Canada, I believe it's under 12,000 pounds, effectively. Anything above that, you need a type rating on that exact aircraft. But even without that, you do all your training, like in a Cessna 172, for example, which is what I did. If you're going to go and now fly a completely different aircraft within the same weight class, legally, you can go and do that. But you probably shouldn't. You should probably do like a few check rides with an instructor who is familiar with that particular aircraft and all the ins and outs of that particular aircraft. Because, you know, the principles are all the same, but every plane has their own little quirks and things that you should probably know about it before you go up in the sky in it. So what would you say, like 10 people max? Because I don't know how much everything else weighs, like fuel and all that other stuff. I know you said 12,000 pounds, but... No, I mean, yeah, it's about... They range, but I think the biggest plane would be like a King Air or something. It's about 10 people or so. So yeah, 10 or less on it usually. Yeah, it makes sense. So I at least can visualize that kind of makes more sense to me. All right. So yeah, you're doing all this on the side and then while you're doing it, are you still still have a lot of free time? Because you're doing this for fun and I don't know if you had sold off the Naked Lady websites at this point yet or not. Well, I mean, that's what's financing all my schooling. Right. And your licensures, right? Yeah. And the expenses that come with certain licenses. Once you get the scuba license, you have to go and use it. So you end up traveling to places with your scuba gear and diving and exploring all the fish that lives underwater, I suppose. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> so don't worry. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> we won't discuss if the world's flat or not, but I will tell you that fish do live in the sea. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. I didn't believe it at first, but then it's like, yep, they're like right there. That's why you had to get your scuba license to make sure that that was a true thing. Yeah, that was literally one of the reasons. I don't know if you went, ever went scuba, but what's nice about scuba is it doesn't matter what kind of worries you have when you're above water. When you're like underwater, you're like in this other world, which is kind of like this weightless world. You just forget about everything that worries you on a day-to-day basis. You're like, oh, cool, I'm weightless and there's like fish all around. So nice. It's like taking an edible. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's edibles and meditation, but like underwater. No, I'm feeling it. I've done the scuba diving class and I got certified, but then I didn't do much after that. So actually, that's kind of when Corona started happening. It's like, I still wouldn't dive that deep. I mean, I feel like the most I would feel comfortable is like 20 feet, like to be honest. And there's some people who go off the ocean where I live and want to go dive and stuff. And I'm like, dude, I would never do that shit. It sounds like that's up your alley though, right? I have done skydiving once. I do want to get a skydiving license as well uh, at some point in the future, just when I have more time. But yeah, that's a pretty fun activity. Well, how about scuba diving? How deep have you gone? Not super deep because to go deeper, first of all, it's not as fun because you need to become like a technical diver and then you're diving with multiple tanks of different air mixtures and you have to like switch them at the right time. And if you were to fuck up, you will literally die. Right. (laughs) So I only did recreational diving. So you go up to like maybe like 20, 30 meters so times three for uh, feet for freedom eagles per stadium football field or whatever you guys use. How did you know what I was Googling? I'm like, 30 meters. I have no fucking idea. 30 meters to feet. That's 98 feet in case anyone's wondering. Yeah, is that like a quarter of a football field or something like that? No, there's 100 yards. Yeah, so it is a third. We make things so complicated for <laughs> no reason. Sorry about that. And how many eagles is it if you lay them wing to wing, roughly? Is eagles a metric of measurement? Well, isn't it like freedom eagles per cubic yard or something that you guys use? I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of the eagle measurement. I was like, how fucking dumb am I? What is the bald eagle size is coming up? Sorry, I think you lost me at eagles of measurement. So we'll pretend that it never happened. Yeah, yeah, alrighty. All right. So yeah, back to you making money from eventually closing down these naked lady websites, I thought. Yeah, so at that point, all that stuff is kind of, you know, nothing lasts forever, especially when you 
it's on effectively autopilot. And I didn't really want to become an innovator in that industry. And that'd be like, you know, the thing that I do. So it was just sitting there generating revenue while collecting these licenses, always thinking about, hey, what other things can I be doing that are interesting and that solve some kind of a problem? That site also solved the problem, but a more, a better problem than that. So one of those ideas, this kind of like stemmed from my university days, which was kind of like, okay, I have a class in the morning and then I have a class in the evening and I don't want to go home and just go study in between those two classes. So you have this large break in between classes and whatever friends that you have, their schedules are usually different. Everybody has their own different classes at different times. So it's very rarely that you're going to have same off time as your friends do. So you're like bored, right? So I'm like, hmm, would it be great if there was some kind of a service that, you know, connected bored students who have breaks between classes to basically go do activities together, whatever those activities might be. Oh, I want to play tennis between this and this time, or I'm down to see a movie between this and this time. And then basically it would connect students in your school with other students to kind of do the same activities together, make new friends, and just not be as bored between your classes. I made this website, it was called Fill Time, because it's supposed to fill your time, but it was with a PH, because it's all funny and quirky and stuff. So I've built that whole thing effectively by myself with my amazing programming skills (laughs) at the time. And then it was time to market it, right? So we're like, okay, well, at that point, Facebook already existed. So we're like, okay, let's take the Facebook approach, just launching it in Toronto with the Toronto schools that exist here, which there's a bunch. There's, I think, three universities and a bunch of other colleges. So there's like a sizable student population and a lot of them are downtown. So it's kind of very convenient. So we did a bunch of marketing stunts. When you needed to solve the chicken or the egg problem where people who come on the website, they need something to do. And if there's nothing to do, they're not going to come on the website and you need to jumpstart this whole thing. But they used to come on your other website. Uh, they sure did. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's really clever. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> All right. So back to fill time. <laughs> yeah. So we needed to people to come on that website and be like, oh, there's all this stuff to do here and effectively organize your own events. So you can turn into like a feedback loop where we don't have to organize these events ourselves. Long story short, nobody wanted to organize any events. People came out to the events that we organized, including like we did a bunch of publicity once we organized like a big pillow fight. And I guess it's called Young and Dundas Square here in Toronto, which is a very shitty version of Times Square in New York. It's a big square. There's a bunch of screens. There's a lot of people there. So we organized like this pillow fight in the center of the square with a few hundred people that ended up in the news a little bit. Oh, that's happening. It's cool. You know, we did a bunch of other events. The most popular event with the highest turnout was a free kegger where we gave students free booze. Naturally, a lot of people came. (laughs) That was by far our most popular event. You know, the idea is there, you know, get everybody talking to each other, meet each other and start organizing these events. But nobody ever did anything meaningful. And that project pretty much had to come to an end. So the profitability analysis of just giving away free beer and you get nothing in return wasn't working? Well, yeah, something in return would be like, hey, go make events. That's what we were looking for. That they just wanted free beer? They just wanted free beer and <laughs> someone else to organize events, you know, which people did show up to, even the not beer ones, but nobody wanted to do anything themselves. I think that's par for life, it sounds like, though. Yeah, yeah. That's the downside of trying to... It was effectively a social network, right? It's really hard to launch a social network. So from there... So from there, this was not the only thing that, you know, I was doing at the time. It's not the only thing filling your time? Yeah, no, my time was uh, being filled with trying to come up with other ideas. 
Honestly, I don't even remember most of them at this point. I just have a very large failed projects folder on one of my backup drives where all these projects that I've tried and failed uh, reside in, like all the code and anything related to those projects. That folder is pretty large. I think there's a few dozen things that were attempted over, I guess, maybe like a 10 to 15 year span. Yeah, but I'll say the main thing is at least you're trying versus other people just think and don't try. You know, I think that's one thing we can learn from your story. Yeah, very few things will ever work out. You know, it's very rare for you to like start a thing and have that be a massive success and that to be your first project. And even if you have some kind of marginal success with something that you've done previously, then you're all like hyped up. It's like, okay, I know the shit. I know how to program. I got all this stuff figured out. And then, you know, life says otherwise, you know, you're not as smart as you think and you're not as cocky as you think. But the main thing is just keep trying, right? Yeah. At what point did you eventually start Windscribe then? Because we still haven't got to that. I've heard about pillow fights and naughty lady websites. So there were a bunch of other failed projects. Like I was working with some friends of mine for some of those projects and solo for the other projects with the friends that I was working with at the time. We're like, hey, maybe it's time to stop coming up with all these ideas and just build someone else's failed projects instead for money. So we started kind of like a development firm and we did like a few smaller projects. One of the bigger ones, which kind of leads me back into Belarus for a short period of time as well, was like a cloud storage service, which was similar to Dropbox. So we were commissioned to build the application for that company. And what year was it? <sighs> Probably like 2011-ish, I would say, 11, 12, somewhere around that time. We were building that project for well over a year, so probably like a year and a half. I designed all the back end, uh, did all the design work. It was like a team of maybe like four or five people working on, on that particular project. And then we also needed to make applications for that particular project as well, so, which is basically like, you know, much like Dropbox, you have your Windows and Mac, Android and iOS applications that, you know, sync files in between devices. So we needed that to be a part of the service. At that point, I'm like, hmm, okay, well, I'm from Belarus. You know, Belarus is a bunch of developers there. So how about we get like a little satellite office, get a few developers in there and have them work with us and build those parts of that particular service. So we did do that. We made a small office. I think we hired about maybe five or six people there under the oversight of a friend of mine who still lived there. So they built out all those applications. In the end, like by the time everything was done, it was honestly like a really great application. It was much better than Dropbox was at that point and even is today, in my humble opinion. But long story short, by the time we finished this project, the owners of that project effectively decided that they don't want to do it anymore. And they just literally pulled the plug and said, fuck all of this. This project is done. Literally, like, I would say three weeks after we're like, hey, okay, everything's production ready. We can go ahead with this. They literally pulled the plug on the whole thing after a year and a half of development and us starting a new office in a different country. So that was kind of like a downer. At that point, we're like, hmm, okay, so we have this office. We need to utilize those folks that we got there, right? So we tried to get them another project. Nothing substantial was on the radar. So I didn't want to like just fire everyone and be like, okay, have a good day. So what I told them was come up with an idea and you have a year of like runway, basically. We'll pay all your salaries. We'll pay your office. Nothing really changes. Come up with an idea, build it, and we'll see what happens. So they did. They've built, uh, honestly, I did not expect them to come up with that kind of idea, especially in Belarus, but they've built a mobile application that allows you to rap battle other people in different countries. Battle rap application. It was called Battle Me. I think they've rebranded it now to Rap Fame, which is basically a spiritual successor to the original application. I think it has like millions of installs at this point. So they're actively running that application. I believe it's 
profitable. They're actually generating revenue from it. They've done a few accelerators. I believe the actual founders of that thing now don't no longer even live in Belarus for reasons that I've mentioned earlier, because there's not much hope as it stands right now. So yeah, they're actively uh, kind of working on a project that still have some equity in it. So hopefully they'll do something with it long term, maybe get a little cash out settlement there. It's got fantastic reviews on Android and iOS, and it's rapfame.app if anyone's, even if you just Google rap fame, that comes up. So yeah, it seems like it became a success. Yeah, it's a really well-made app. There's a lot of stuff in it. It really came a long way since that first year when they made the original prototype with a bunch of <laughs> white dudes in Belarusia doing a, <laughs> a rap application. It's kind of, hmm, is, is that what you want to do? Okay, cool. Let's see how this pans out. And, you know, it worked out. And so as they do that, do you just kind of keep funding them? Well, yeah, we basically funded them for one year until they could like stand on their own feet. Then they got some angel money and then, you know, they started generating some revenue. I was kind of like an angel investor, I guess, in that particular application. Okay. And then at what point do we eventually start Winscribe? There's one more step in between Winscribe and where we are at right now. So we're like, okay, cool. So that cloud storage thing ended. What a pity. What else can we do? And at that point, an acquaintance of mine suggested, hey, daily fantasy sports are a huge thing right now. This was like around two years after DraftKings was launched. I think it was like maybe like 2012 or 13 or 14, something like that. So we're like, hey, let's make a daily fantasy sport website. And, you know, I'm not a sport guy. I don't watch sports at all. I know nothing about sports. But the person who actually, whose idea it was, he was a sports guy and he was a math guy as well. So he made his quote unquote proprietary scoring algorithm and was like, okay, this is going to be amazing. It's so much better than what's out there, FanDuel and DraftKings, which were pretty much the market leaders at that time and, it, and pretty much still are. I believe they even merged together. I'm not even sure if their acquisition happened or not. But anyway, between DraftKings and FanDuel, they had 95% of the market. And then the rest, the remaining 5% of the market was basically occupied by the 20 plus copycats as being one of them. And, you know, naturally that doesn't work out. So that project also failed after about a year of development and trying to make it happen is just was not sustainable or profitable. You can't really compete with the big guys at that point. So while that was happening, you know, I already knew that, hey, this thing, even though it would turn out to be like a really cool application, like from a technical perspective, which I really enjoyed, I don't know anything about that industry and I don't find it interesting. So I sat down and was like, hmm, what do I actually like and know a thing or two about that I am genuinely interested in? And more importantly, the state of that industry is complete garbage at the time. And that's when I looked into VPNs because I was using VPNs for you know many years before that. I've used every single provider out there that existed at that time. And all of them were kind of these very techy applications. Sometimes there would be no applications at all. You have to like read these guides to start using these services that were all buggy stuff would just crash. It would not be user-friendly at all. They would make all these kind of dubious promises of like, oh, 100% anonymity, just connect to our VPN server, which is not true. It's not going to give you almost any anonymity by just connecting to a VPN server and changing nothing else. It's complete snake oil bullshit, in my opinion. Yeah. So the VPNs were like, okay, cool. I think we can do better than that. So this was like about 2015, early 2015 at that point. So we're like, oh, hey, okay, let's build a VPN. And about a year later, we launched basically Winscribe. Yeah, it took about a year to build. You know, obviously I didn't build the whole thing myself. We had to get developers to work on different applications. That's where some of the money went. So obviously that all of this was bootstrapped from my projects that were, you know, either 
basically winding down at that point. The trickle of revenue was getting smaller and smaller and smaller at that point. So whatever was left basically was reinvested into Winscribe and officially launched on April 20th, 2016. And effectively, it became profitable very quickly due to, I guess, the quality of the service and the marketing approach that we took, which is don't do any marketing, just be transparent, be honest and talk to people, just go out and just literally answer people's questions, take criticism and take that criticism and feed it back into your product, constantly improve it and iterate as fast as you possibly can. And that's, I think, what got us to a point where we're at right now. Was it hard to learn the idea of like managing people versus you just building it all out yourself? Because it sounded like maybe that's all you did before versus managing people to try to help you build the VPN. I guess I know you got some practice from the app and whatever else, but was that different? It is totally different, but we had smaller teams before. Like for the previous project, I think the biggest team that I had before was maybe like eight or 10 people, so to speak, you know, half of them being on a different continent. And it's a bit more informal and you knew they were on a different continent because you got that geography degree, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. You're, you're a sharp one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was the hardest part about building out your last business here, Winscribe? What's the hardest part? I mean, there's a lot of hard things. You effectively, if you want to be successful, I had no life of any kind at all. You're working, you know, 14 hour days. You're doing as much of the things as possible yourself, especially in the early days. If you need something done, you either do it yourself or you pay someone else to do it. And if you don't want to do that and you feel that you want to be able to do it in the way that you imagine it and you feel you can do it faster, then do it yourself, right? Well, what hours were you working? I know you said like 14 hours, but I was curious, envisioning you working in a basement during winter in Canada at night. Am I visualizing this correctly or am I not? Well, no, no, it wasn't as gloomy as that because, I mean, we did have an office, a small office at the time from our software development, quote unquote, firm. So we were working out of that. I found it a long time ago that working from home, it doesn't work for me. At that point, like your work life and your home life kind of blurs together. You're never really at home and you're never really at work. You're, you're literally then just sleeping at the office, which is exactly like working at home. And you're less productive. And then especially someone moves into the house with you, a girlfriend at the time, and then wife. There's distractions. There's a dog running around, barking. I can't handle it. So that's why I pretty much work exclusively out of the office. Even during the last two years, I've been making the trek downtown pretty much every single day to sit in the office with a handful of other people who also feel the same way and happen to live in Toronto. Nice. All right. Yeah. So yeah, you gave us that life. Um, but I guess me trying to figure out again, I guess some of the hardest things that you had overcome that maybe things that might be able to help other people who are listening business-wise building Winscribe. If I were to make the uh, kind of narrow down to a single thing, growing a business without kind of traditional advertising and marketing tools that exist out there. And there are so, so many, right? That's, I would say, unique to an industry that, that I'm in, which is privacy. A privacy tool should not violate your privacy for you to become its customer. A privacy company should not be using the ad networks and the promotional tools that exist out there, that their whole objective is to collect as much information so they can target you in novel ways across the entire internet, which involves immense amount of tracking. It involves, you know, setting tracking cookies on all your devices, following you across the web, showing you the same ad over and over again until you're like, okay, fuck this. Okay, I'm going to buy this damn thing as I'm tired of seeing eh, these freaking ads. You go on their website, you're going to be exposed with 
sometimes a dozen of these tracking pixels for different social networks, Facebook, Twitter, those things have no business being on a privacy company's website. And the reason why they're there is because, you know, they make their marketing efforts easier. It's easier to quantify your ad spending to see what works, what doesn't in order to get users. I felt that is extremely dishonest and, you know, borderline hypocritical when you're promising your customers that you will protect their privacy all while you're compromising their privacy in order to sell your own product to that group of people. I find it kind of gross. So, which is why we, from day one, for example, our website is completely clean of any kind of a third-party tracking pixels. Everything that we offer to our users, we try to either make it in-house or use open source software that we self-host ourselves so data doesn't leak out anywhere. The customer data that we happen to have stays with us and only with us and doesn't get leaked to like Facebook and Twitter, that kind of stuff, which is true for a lot of our competitors right now. So trying to grow a business with that kind of mindset where you cannot use ad networks, where you cannot use, you know, A-B testing platforms or anything that helps you optimize your sales funnel because we didn't have a sales funnel. To this day, we have no salespeople. We have no biz dev people. It's literally all developers support, which we do also in-house. We have people doing support sitting here in Toronto. Everyone is for the most part local. Since COVID though, we did kind of like open the gates of like hiring outside of Canada. It's sort of, I guess, inevitable at this point. It doesn't really matter where the person is. If your interactions are through a Slack channel and the occasional face-to-face -face video call. So that didn't open up the gates a little bit, but up to, let's say the start of COVID, 95% of our staff were here in Toronto physically. Well, thanks for coming on and um, sharing your story. And eventually we got over to what you're doing today. And it sounds like it's been, again, I think the main thing that we pull from is uh, how many obstacles people will have to overcome just because that first company doesn't work or first idea. Like you said, you've got a whole file bin or whatever of like the field ideas, but it's only like people see the good ones, but you got to go through some of the tough stuff before you actually find one that works. Yeah. And some of the times you will actually, you might not even find something that works. You might have a string of failures and some people have that happen and then they just kind of give up and go work for a company. It's like, okay, startup game is not for me. And that can happen. And that is actually the most likely outcome if you're playing the numbers on average. But sometimes it does work out. Those are some inspiring words. So we appreciate that. Someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview. What's the best way for them to reach out and say thanks for doing the interview? I mean, you can always email me directly or go on our subreddit or go on our Twitter. I'll see it. My direct email is igor at winscribe.com. That's with a Y. Oh, yeah. Thanks for, again, coming on, sharing your story. It was fun. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was fun. So hopefully y'all enjoyed that interview um, here with Igor. We basically did that interview two months ago. And what's happened between then, it's obviously some terrible stuff between, you know, Russia and Ukraine. And he was from Belarus, as hopefully you remember, since you just listened to the interview. So I figured we just add this in at the end and hopefully get an update from Igor on what his thoughts are of what's going on over there. Thanks for joining us on a second part of the interview. Hey. So do you have any input? Like I said, I figured we'd just do a quick uh, summary of what your thoughts were and hopefully get some input from someone who's actually been over there. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I've actually never been to Russia ever. And my uh, <laughs> I've, I've been to Ukraine literally for half a day once in my entire life. So, I mean, my uh, personal experience with those two countries is very limited. However, you know, I do have a lot of friends and family from that general region. And I mean, uh, what's happening there is, you know, absolutely terrible starting from you know, the war itself, obviously, right? That's it's an unnecessary escalation that nobody wanted. 
but what's equally as terrible is what's actually happening you know in russia in terms of the the level of propaganda that's uh that's happening over there from the state media channels and even the russians that allegedly you know support the war i mean they're just doing it out of pure ignorance because they, they have no access to any kind of external information or even desire to look at it uh, in, in a lot of cases but i think biggest problem is lack of access, right? Because everything is being, you know, filtered. I mean, right now everything's being blocked and filtered. You can't access a lot of the Western media, which is considered, you know, fake news, uh, according to Putin and, and his cronies. It's really, really unfortunate. And, you know, a, a lot of, you know, companies uh, are, you know, rightfully so, you know, stopping operations in Russia, right? You know, hey, like if you're an oil company, don't buy oil from Putin because, you know, it directly finances this war. Makes sense. Don't do that. Uh, you know, if you're, you know, McDonald's, you don't want to sell burgers. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's your choice. You know, at the end of the day, you don't really need burgers to survive in Russia. But, you know, access to actual information, I think, is, is very different, you know, and we have a lot of requests to block all Russian users from our from our service over the last week or so, right, coming from the government and individual people in Ukraine saying, you know, Russians need to be cut off. And uh, we really kind of disagree with that request as it pertains to, you know, a service like Winscribe that does allow you to, you know, break out out of the government firewall and access what, you know, actual real news that we take for granted over here. So and for these reasons, we are not going to be terminating Russian access to our service. They can't really pay for it anymore because of the sanctions. But I mean, we do offer free service for pretty much everyone. And we've been giving out a lot of uh, extra free bandwidth to people in Ukraine and Russia on both sides of the border. They use it for different use cases, but I think this is a lot more applicable to Russians because uh, we want them to, you know, learn what's actually happening instead of, you know, watching state media that literally says the opposite things that are happening. They're, you know, they're showing video footage of the bombings and saying, you know, this is the Ukrainians, you know, bombing their own cities which is uh, absolutely insane but people that consume the state media they're like well yeah that, that's true it's literally on tv why would i not believe it right so fuck the west right so by cutting them off that does a disservice to everyone over there you know and we, we've we, we've received a lot of requests from you know local charities and you know concerned citizens you know who are organizing and spreading you know real news in the country and they and the use of a vpn is like invaluable for them right cutting them off would be absolutely ridiculous yeah by using your vpn they can actually not consume russia's stuff yeah that makes no sense to me i don't understand there's certain like when i saw that and you that was your statement kind of on your website 100 percent agree so i think that's a smart stance but one other thing too i mean i was curious didn't you say you actually had some employees that were in ukraine or no uh, yeah, no, we have a, we have employees in Russia and Belarus and in Ukraine. And uh, yeah, the, the ones that are in Ukraine had to, you know, switch jobs to patrolling the streets with automatic weapons as opposed to writing code. So this is extremely unfortunate. And yeah, we're, I mean, there's only so much that we can do. We're paying their salaries despite of them working, obviously. We're here if, if they need us, but, they, you know, obviously our reach is very limited considering, you know, <laughs> we're a VPN company based in Canada. There's only so much we can do over here. And, you know, I think I think we're doing whatever we can. I know, but it's pretty crazy. But I'm just wondering, like, do the employees that are in those three countries, I guess, do they still com all communicate? Well, I guess the Ukrainians ones can if they're like doing foot patrol now, right? Uh, yeah, no, we get the occasional updates, you know, whenever there's uh, whenever they appear online. For example, like what happened with Upwork, the uh, they allow you know people to do like IT gigs 
developer jobs and all kinds of other jobs, right? So they recently blocked access to all the Russian and Belarusian citizens. Uh, they can no longer, you know, get jobs on the platform as a result of this. And to me, this is like also absolutely insane in the sense that, you know, they've claimed that, hey, if you leave that country, you know, we'll welcome you back on our service. Well, first of all, you know, like try leaving those countries to to move somewhere else. It's hard. There's a reason why, uh, you know, everyone is not doing it because it's really difficult to leave those places legally. And second of all, you know, like the people that are, you know, IT workers in Russia and in Belarus, first of all, they all speak English. They work for Western companies. They have access to, you know, external media and they have a picture of what's going on, you know, outside of state television. Those people are not the enemy. You know, in fact, <laughs> they're the opposite, right? And you're effectively punishing those people and taking away their livelihood because they happen to be born in the wrong country, right? Despite of what their political beliefs might be. You know, I'm sure some of them might be Putin supporters, sure, but I would bet most are not. And they don't like this conflict and they're fully against it. But now, you know, uh, they're pushed like, okay, I just lost my livelihood and, uh, you know, fuck the West as a result, just like they said on TV. Right. That just pushes them towards Putin, not not against. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, thanks for that input. You know, we see it on the news and stuff, but actually we just had a great interview and, you know, it's probably the most I've ever laughed in an interview. But then it's once you see the news and actually can relate to this, you know, you're actually dealing with this. You probably before our interview, there's no way you would ever thought I think this would go on. Right. You saw a family in any family in Belarus and what are their thoughts? Because they're pretty close and kind of. I don't know if they're allied with Russia pretty much. I heard them call it Belarusia. I don't even know if that, I guess that's a nickname or whatever, but what are their thoughts too? Right. No, I mean, the official name is Belarus, but honestly, it is literally Belarusia now because, you know, our uh, mustache president does whatever Putin basically says because he's what, you know, like Russia is financing Belarus quite heavily, right? So he's basically just a lapdog and he will do what, what is told. I mean, I don't have that much family in Belarus anymore. I mean, everyone is pretty much here or or in America for the most part. I have a lot of relatives living in the U.S. for a lot longer than I've been living in Canada. It's it's mostly the people that have on the ground and like in like Moscow and uh, in Kiev. So getting updates from them is very interesting in in one way because it's kind of like you know news straight from from like a first party source. So you're not kind of reading a rehash of some story, but it's also really frightening and, and really sad. I mean, in terms of support, I mean, what, what, what can the average person, you know, really do other, other than, you know, communicate what's actually happening to, you know, if, if they have friends or family over there. And I'm sure they've been, whoever does have those things, you know, I'm sure that they're talking all the time about this. So it's just kind of like, you know, don't be angry at, you know, the average Russian person. They're, uh, you know, most people, uh, I would wager, do not support this war. A lot of them are just ignorant because they don't have access to information. So try to spread the truth as much as you can if they will believe you, which is a whole other story. Like a friend of mine who is from Russia, he is here, but his father is is over there as well as a bunch of his extended family. They literally do not believe him uh, that uh, what's actually, you know, what's happening in the news. They don't believe that that's true. They believe what's actually on TV. Right. And this is like, you know, your, your close family members. So you can imagine how deep this rabbit hole goes with decades of propaganda that you're consuming every single day. It does change a human psyche and makes a person into a, literally like a zombie. I'm not sure how those a bunch of those people can be reprogrammed at this point. Right. I mean, some are open minded. A bunch of them are not. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's why I think, you know, thank goodness we had the internet, you know, 20, 25 years ago or else we probably would all have been like that. Like I was saying, even my parents, I mean, they're all open-minded. I think anyone with the internet now, but if you're growing up and you only had TV, that was the only source you had. And it sounds like that's kind of what they're having to deal with. You know, you can't really blame them because that's all they're being fed. But hopefully, um, you know, this is a little insight into actually what's going on over there. And um, just appreciate you sharing this on the part two here. Yeah, yeah. Elon should start airdropping uh, Starlink terminals all over Russia. Yeah, he started doing it in Ukraine, right? So hopefully he'll start doing the Russian Russia. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview... Well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.